0: perspective that we need, that you would bring encouragement uh, to sustain us as we seek to trust you and love you and obey you. I pray that you would bring needed correction. Sometimes we need to be disciplined. Sometimes we need to be convicted of our sin. And I pray then that you would also bring to us the comfort and assurance that in the gospel, in the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood, you have given not just supplies for our needs. You've actually given yourself to us. And more than all, in you we find you are enough. So unite our hearts together, Lord Jesus, as we seek your face today. Amen. Well, before we jump into Luke chapter 9 this morning and and resume our study in the Gospel of Luke, I want to ask you to turn to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4, there's this often overlooked little story that's tucked in here at the end of 2 Kings chapter 4, and it's a story about a prophet. It's a prophet named Elisha. Elisha uh, is the successor to uh, maybe his more famous mentor and predecessor, Elijah, and Elisha follows Elijah in ministry, and he often spends time with a group of men called the Sons of the Prophets. We don't know a lot about these guys, but it appears to be some sort of ministry training school of sorts. So, think about this before we jump into Luke. You have a band of men training for ministry who are following and learning from God's appointed prophet. You might even call these men disciples of a sort. 2 Kings chapter 4, picking up in verse 42. A man came from Baal, Shalishah, bringing the man of God, that's referring to Elisha, he's bringing to him bread of the first fruits. 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. In this little story, somehow, by the miraculous power of God, one man's offering, one man's first fruit, saying, here's, here's some of my grain and some of the first bed, bread that I've baked and I'm coming to offer it to the Lord, what one man carried in his little sack was able to feed a hundred men, and there were Leftovers. This miracle proved not only that God cared for his servants, he would provide for the needs of the sons of the prophets, but it also proved that Elisha, this prophet, he really was God's man. He truly was a worthy successor for Elijah, his master and mentor. This is one of several miracles in 2 Kings 4. There's a number of these that teach a specific lesson, that God provides abundantly for his people through his prophet. We see that in 2 Kings chapter four. Now I want you to flip over to Luke chapter nine. We're gonna fast forward eight centuries to a different scene, a different time, a different place to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And once again, we find God providing abundantly and miraculously for his people. And this time he provides through more than a prophet. He's providing through his son, through Jesus And once again, this miracle proves not only that God cares for his people and will provide for them, but specifically that God provides through his appointed man, through Jesus, who is the God-man, the Messiah, and that Jesus is, is possessing a power that is only explainable by supernatural means. And it is a power that is not only able to meet our physical needs, but also a power that is able to meet even our spiritual needs. Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 10. It says, On their return, the disciples told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. And there were about 5,000 men, And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. The lesson of this familiar story is hopefully very clear, that Jesus is a Savior who provides for our need. And I want to spend our time this morning trying to draw out three insights into this provision. I know this story is familiar. In fact, it's found in, it's the only story except for the resurrection. It's the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. So it's important. It's impactful. And it's probably familiar, But what we need to hear this morning, whether you don't know Christ, whether you're a brand new believer, whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades, we need to be reminded that Jesus is a Savior who provides for our need. And the first insight we find in verses 10 through 11, and it's this, is that Jesus provides for all who come to him. He provides for all who come to him. Look back in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, And he took them and withdrew apart to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And look what Jesus does. He welcomes them. He welcomes them. This scene, just to sort of put it in context, follows directly after what we looked at last week, this ministry tour of the 12. Jesus had commissioned them to go throughout the region and to preach the good news of the kingdom and to heal. We see that in the first nine verses of Luke chapter 9. And so they're coming back from this trip, coming back from their journey. They've been preaching and teaching and healing. And on their return, they give this report. Their mission has been accomplished And they're eager to tell Jesus all about it. They told Jesus all about the towns that eagerly received them and and the people who took them into their homes and provided for them. And they also told Jesus about the towns that didn't receive them, the towns where they had to wipe the dust off of their feet. They told Jesus about the times where the divine power and authority that he had granted them flowed through them to heal the sick and to set spiritual captives free. They're telling Jesus all about this. And as they tell Jesus all about it, Jesus, as a wise and understanding master, he recognizes these guys need a break. These guys need some time for rest. And he decides that they should get away for a bit. So Luke says that he took them and withdrew apart. The other gospel authors tell us they headed for a remote place. It's in the, the region of this town called Bethsaida. And that's where they head. It's on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee. They're away from people, away from the Wi-Fi, you know, away from anyone that's going to come and, and, and need them or, or interrupt them, away from the people that are just excited to see some new miracle, and also away from some who might be their spiritual opponents. If you remember, at the end of last week's text, we saw that Herod was very interested in seeing Jesus, and that is not a good thing. And so they headed to this north shore in the region near Bethsaida, which is technically just outside of Herod's jurisdiction. So they're getting out of town. They're pulling away, but they hardly get a chance to catch their breath because look what happens in verse 11. People learn about their whereabouts and they follow them. They find them. Now, the question is, what would you do? What would you do if on your vacation, your boss showed up and says, hey, did you get my email? What would you do if, you know, during your time away, all of your neighbors are showing up and saying, hey, I need you to help me um, finish my deck? Well, you and I would probably not do what Jesus did. Rather than turn them away, rather than be frustrated, rather than be annoyed, Jesus welcomes them. He welcomes them. When the crowds learned of it, they followed him and he welcomed them. This shows us the hospitality of Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about that word hospitality and connected it to Christ, but we ought to. It shows us the hospitality of Jesus, really hospitality, this welcoming spirit that invites people in and seeks to meet their need. That is an expression of grace. It's a grace that brings people in, a grace that that draws near, a grace that provides for needs. It's a grace that expresses love. And we see that hospitality here in the heart of Jesus. And it's in the heart of Jesus because really this hospitality is the heart and character of God. The gospel is God's hospitality to sinners. In the gospel, God invites us into his family, he invites us to come and sit at his table, he invites us in and offers to provide for our needs. The gospel is really an expression of the hospitality. Of God, And we see this in Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who welcomes these needy people, even though it's totally interrupting what they had intended to do. It also shows us the compassion of Christ, that even though he and his disciples needed rest, even though they needed some time together to regroup, he sees the needs of the crowd. And Jesus doesn't just care about his own needs. He doesn't even just care about the needs of his inner circle— He cares for all who are coming. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus looked on them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus does more than just see their need. He sacrificially seeks to meet that need. Jesus, first of all, sees their spiritual need. Look in verse 11. He welcomes them and and he speaks to them about the kingdom of God. He told them about God's promises. He told them the good news about the coming kingdom. He told them that they needed to repent and believe so that they might experience the good news of what God is coming to do through his son. They needed truth. And that's what Jesus provides for them first and foremost. This is why Moses wrote years before, man shall not live by bread alone but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus sees their spiritual need and he preaches to them the truth of the good news. Friends, we need truth. Our souls need to be fed. And that's what Jesus does here. He sees their spiritual need, but he also sees their physical need. He not only spoke to them of the kingdom of God, he also cured those who had need of healing. He cured the blind. He cures the lame. He heals the sick. Over and over again, a simple touch by Jesus, a a simple word from Jesus brings healing and relief to those that were suffering physically. He sees their spiritual need. He sees their physical need. And what does Jesus do? Well, he does the same thing he's been doing throughout his ministry. The same thing he called the disciples to do as they spread out and went two by two to these various towns. He preaches the good news of the kingdom and he heals and cures those who come to him. And he does this despite their fatigue, despite the fact that this is interrupting their plans, despite the inconvenience, he stops what he's doing. And right then and there, he provides for all who come to him. He spends himself for their good this is how Jesus meets needs he provides for all who come to him this is the same Jesus who says in Matthew 11 come to me all who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest this is the same Jesus who says in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is a savior who provides for our needs, physically, yes, but especially spiritually. And Jesus turns no one away. He will not turn away the needy sinner who comes to him by faith. Jesus provides for all who come to him. But there's a second insight into Jesus's provision is that Jesus provides what we cannot Jesus is able to give us something that we don't have, something we can't manufacture, something we can't attain or acquire. Jesus provides what we cannot. We see this in verses 12 through 16. The disciples perceive a problem. Verse 12, it says, Now the day began to wear away, And the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. The day is almost over and the disciples are feeling the pressure. They see what appears to be a problem and they come to Jesus with a solution in mind. Jesus, can you just send them all away? send them home, send them to go into town and find something to eat before it gets any later than it already is. So they come with this idea. We have a problem, but we have a good idea on how to fix it, Jesus. But notice how Jesus responds. He has a different solution in mind. But he said to them, verse 13, you give them something to eat. You feed them. In the original language, the New Testament is written. In in the Greek language, the you here is emphatic. You guys need to figure this one out. If this problem is such a concern to you, then why don't you address it, disciples? And I think he's indicating here that just because they're back from their teaching tour throughout Israel, just because they're done with that little journey, it doesn't mean they're done participating in Jesus's ministry. He wants them to be a part of the solution. And I don't think he's rebuking them. This is not a harsh, this is not an angry response. He's not saying, it's not my problem, that's yours, you figure it out. No, he sees this problem, as it were, as an opportunity. This is an opportunity to teach his disciples an important lesson. And that lesson has to do, first of all, with their inability. Notice how the disciples respond. They said to him, right here in the middle of verse 13, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. The other gospel authors tell us that's actually a little boy's lunch. They scrounge around to see what they have on hand, and that's all they can come up with. Then they answer, unless, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, and I don't think they're actually offering to do that. They're saying, you can't possibly expect us to go and buy food for everyone who's gathered here, right? You see, they, they see a number of potential solutions. They think the first option and the best option is, why don't you just send them away? I guess the second option is that we have to feed them, but we only have a little bit of food on hand. The third option, you really expect us to go and somehow buy food for all these people? John chapter 6, we're told that Philip, one of the disciples, he pointed out that 200 denarii would not be enough to even give everyone one or two little bites of food. And 200 denarii was nearly a year's wages for a day laborer. So obviously this is impossible, They can't go buy that much food. They don't have enough money. And even if they did, there's no Sam's Club or Costco where you can buy in bulk. I mean, they would have cleaned out the marketplace. So the disciples are putting two and two together. They're doing all the math and realizing, Jesus, you're asking us to do something that's impossible. And we see a pattern here that these men are so focused on the problem and so focused on their circumstances. They forget the power of their Savior. They forget who it is that's standing in their midst. You know what option they don't think of? They never think to ask Jesus. They think their best options are punt, tell them to go away and find food for themselves, share what we have, or somehow come up with the money. But they don't consider the goodness and the power of the one who is in their midst, the one who casts out demons, the one who calms the storm, the one who can even raise the dead. They didn't ask him. So, what is Jesus doing here and telling them, You give them something to eat? He's forcing them to reckon with their own inability. And that's an important lesson for them and an important lesson for us as well. Sometimes God does give us more than we can handle. You give them something to eat. Well, that's impossible. Exactly. That's what they needed to recognize. It's impossible for them. It's impossible to do in their own strength. It's impossible if they have to come up with the food. It's impossible if they have to scrounge up the cash and go buy food for everyone. Yes, under those circumstances, it is impossible. But he not only wants to teach them about their inability, he also wants to show them something about his ability, his power, his sufficiency. Because Jesus doesn't need money. And he doesn't need any volunteers to donate their food. In contrast to the disciples' inability, we see the power of Jesus on display in a big and grand and unforgettable way. Again, this miracle is the only miracle outside the resurrection that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Apparently, it made quite the impression on the 12 and was something that they felt every believer needs to know about. So when they all write their Gospels, they make sure to include this story. So what's the solution to this problem? Well, you probably know, right? We read it earlier. He tells them, you know, there's, for, verse 14, Luke makes sure we know there's about 5,000 men here, which means even more people if you count the women and children. Then he tells the disciples what they're gonna do. He says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And then notice what Jesus does. He takes the bread, the little Volunteer donation from the kid with the lunch. He gives thanks. He blesses God. There's a whole sermon there that we don't have time for. And then he breaks it. And then he puts the food in the hands of his disciples. Taking the five loaves, verse 16, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And the Greek Greek verb here that he broke it and gave it to the disciples, it actually indicates an ongoing action. That he was breaking it off and putting it in their hands. He was breaking it and giving to them, and he kept giving it to them, and he kept breaking it off and giving it to them. And it just kept going and going. And then it says that they set it before the crowd. Do you recognize what Jesus is doing here? Yes, he's feeding dinner to a whole bunch of people. But more than that, do you see what he's teaching the disciples? He didn't say to them, oh, you can't do it, huh? Fine, I'll do it by myself. If you want anything done right, I guess you have to do it yourself. No, Jesus breaks it, and he puts it in their hands. He says, oh, you can't do this by yourself? I knew that, and I'm prepared for that. No, you don't need to send them all away. No, we don't need anyone to donate food. No, you don't need to scrounge up the money somehow and go purchase it. Let me help you. And Jesus provides for the 12 what they lacked so that they can fulfill his command and give the crowd something to eat. He fills the empty bellies of the crowd by filling the empty hands of his disciples That's an amazing thing, a lesson that wasn't lost on the 12. And the result of this is remarkable. Remember the story of Elisha in 2 Kings? Remember how 100 men were fed that day by one man's offering? Well, here we see 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. This is an astounding miracle. Whatever power was at work in Elijah and Elisha, the most powerful and the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, what is at work in Jesus so far supersedes those prophets that it puts Jesus in the category all by himself. He is no mere prophet. This is a divine miracle. This miracle is even different than some of the other miracles that Jesus has done. He's not fixing something that's broken like a lame leg or a, or a dysfunctional eye. He's not exercising power over unruly forces like nature or the demons. No, this is a creation miracle. Jesus is making something. There's only one creator. There's only one who can say, let there be. There's only one who can feed a crowd like this. An unforgettable lesson for the disciples that displays the glory and the divinity of Christ that he is God in the flesh But he's also teaching them something essential that Jesus provides what we cannot. And he fills the empty bellies of the crowd by filling the empty hands of his disciples. There's a third insight into Jesus' provision. Verse 17 shows us that when Jesus provides, he provides abundantly. He provides abundantly. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. I love how Luke descriptively wraps up this story. Jesus has welcomed them all, He has taught them all, He has healed all who had need, and now He feeds them all. And they all ate, Luke says, and they were satisfied. This didn't just take the edge off of their hunger. This didn't just tide them over until they could get back home and eat their own food. They were stuffed. They were full. They were needing and wanting nothing more. In fact, there was leftovers, specifically 12 baskets of leftovers. And don't think about the little baskets that, you know, you have on a shelf at home for decoration. Think about a big kind of basket, the kind that they would have slung over their shoulder to use for hauling stuff, hauling grain to market, hauling rocks up from the river to repair your house. This is a big tote, and there was 12 of them full of leftovers. These 12 baskets speak to the abundance of Jesus's provision. Jesus doesn't just barely give enough to get them by. There's an overflow. His ability to provide far exceeds the measure of our need. That's what Jesus is like. That's what his provision is like. Whatever your need is, Christ's supply far exceeds the measure of your need. His grace far exceeds the measure of our sin. His power far exceeds the measure of our weakness. His wisdom far surpasses the measure of our confusion. Jesus never runs out because he's the son of God. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is infinite in his goodness and glory. And so his provision for us is always abundant. It's abundant. These 12 baskets speak to the abundance of his provision. But the number 12 is also significant because I believe Jesus is indicating here that he cares not just for the crowd, Not just for the masses, but he cares specifically for the 12, for his disciples. He sees their needs. He's ministering to the crowd, yes, but he's not forgotten about them. He's not overlooking them. He is thinking about them. He's planning ahead for them. Yes, they did get bumped temporarily. These guys need a break, and Jesus has asked them just for a few more hours, just for one more afternoon, one more evening of sacrifice before we get a chance to recoup but he does see them and he cares for their needs too. He calls them to sacrificially engage in serving others. You give them something to eat. I know you just got back, but let me fill your hands. Now you walk it out and hand it to all the people. But he himself will attend to them and meet their needs. When they come back from that job, tired, weary, and amazed, they each have a basket all to themselves. And Jesus is saying, I haven't forgotten about you. Jesus is a savior who provides abundantly. And while he does promise to meet our daily needs for food and shelter, we can go other places in the gospel where Jesus tells us not to be anxious about tomorrow, not to worry about what we will wear or what we will eat, because our father in heaven promises to meet our needs. Yes, he meets our physical needs. But I believe that it's important we recognize that even beyond that, Jesus is intent on meeting our spiritual needs as the one who is the bread of life, Jesus offers us his own broken body as the solution for our sin. In John chapter six, Jesus would use this miracle as a teaching opportunity to explain to the 12 and explain to the crowds that what they really need is not a meal. What they really need is him. And he offers himself, his body, his blood to provide for them salvation. Jesus comes to supply life to provide forgiveness, to offer mercy, to give us grace. And he does so at great cost to himself. It will cost him far more than one more afternoon of ministry to meet our need for salvation. It will cost him his life. He would breathe his last on a Roman cross, suffering to provide for us to provide for all who would come to him, to provide what we cannot, and to provide abundantly, to provide salvation. There is salvation that is free to all who will come. It is an abundant life. It is infinite grace, infinite joy, infinite love, and an eternal satisfaction. Those people who ate and were satisfied tasted the goodness of Jesus' provision for a day. Those who come to Christ and take from him, his body and his blood, Jesus says you will never thirst again. The satisfaction of that perfect gospel meal is something that will sustain us for an eternity. So what should be our response to this truth that Jesus is the one who provides for our need? Well, I think our response must be one of faith. Let me give you these as we close I want to challenge you, church, to respond in faith and believe that Jesus will provide for your personal need. That is something God wants you to believe in, to trust that he will provide for your personal need. And if you believe this, it's demonstrated by coming to him. Come to him with your needs. Seek Christ. Lay out your needs before him. Believe that he will welcome you. Believe that he will not turn you away. Believe that he is able. Believe that he is willing and that his provision is abundant for you. Trust him to provide for your needs. Trust him to provide for your spiritual needs. It is by faith that we lay hold of Christ and it is through faith that we receive his abundant provision. He provides for us forgiveness, joy, righteousness, atonement, a new heart, all of that is provided to us through faith. We lay hold of Christ and receive his grace through faith. So come to Christ to meet your spiritual needs. If you are far from him today, if you lack peace with God, if you lack the forgiveness and the atonement that Jesus provides, come to Christ. And he will provide for you the salvation that you need. Not only must you trust him for your spiritual needs, but trust him for your physical needs as well. I love Philippians 4.19, which says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every need, physical and spiritual. Every need, maybe not every want. You might not get the new car or the better house or whatever it may be, but every need. He promises to supply every need, so trust him. I think there's a lesson here that was for the 12 that's for us too, and that's that Jesus is far too often our last resort when, we're, when we experience need. The first thing we do is we look around for a little boy with lunch that maybe we can you know scrounge up some resources. The first thing we do is start crunching the numbers to see what we can afford out of our own pocket and how much it's gonna cost. And the last thing we do is look to Jesus. The last thing we do is ask him for help, ask him for wisdom, ask him for direction. Don't forget the power of the living God. The one who is with them now dwells by his spirit in us. He should be the first one we go to with our needs. Rather than looking to our surroundings, rather than looking to ourselves and our resources, we need to look to Jesus and trust him. That's what faith does. So believe that Jesus will provide for your personal needs, spiritually and physically. He sees you, he cares, and he provides. Come to him, he will welcome you. But secondly, I want to exhort us as a church today to rely on Jesus as we seek to meet the needs of others. And this is maybe the the little nuance that maybe you haven't thought of before. We can all read this story and go, oh wow, if Jesus can feed them, he can meet my needs. Good. Yes, that is true. And that's probably right on the surface, but press in just a little bit deeper. Put yourself in the sandals of the disciples. We need to recognize that Christ has called us to a ministry, to a mission. He says, you go share the gospel with them. You go feed them. You go help them grow in Christ likeness. You go minister to those who are grieving and mourning. You go help those who are suffering and struggling. You go help those who are entrapped in sin. You go meet their need. And we go, How can I possibly do that? Don't forget that Jesus filled the empty bellies of the crowd by filling the empty hands of his disciples. So, Christian, consider your calling. Jesus calls you to share the good news of the gospel, and that's a high calling. There are lost sinners who need to hear the good news, and guess what? On your own, you don't have what it takes, and neither do I. You aren't wise enough. You aren't persuasive enough. You aren't bold enough. You aren't loving enough. But here's the good news. Lift your empty hands to Christ that he might fill you with all that you need and more to, to do the ministry that he's calling you to do. Rely on Jesus as you seek to minister to the needs of others. Church member, maybe you feel discouraged here at our church. Maybe you feel disappointed at what you've experienced. Maybe you feel a little bit anxious or intimidated about the spiritual needs that you see around you in this body. You know God wants you to press in you know that God wants you to get involved. You know that God wants you to love people, and he wants you to be part of the solution for the needs and the weaknesses and the immaturities that exist here in this body. But that's pretty overwhelming. You feel overwhelmed by the prospect of trying to step in and help meet those needs. And to top it all off, you know your own imperfections you know that often it's your own weaknesses and immaturities and failings that are part of the dysfunction of of every healthy church, right? Listen, lift your empty hands to Christ and allow him to fill you with all you need and more so that you can minister to the needs of your fellow believers in Christ here at this church. Fathers and mothers, you too have a high calling. Moms and dads are tired today you have an excuse for falling asleep during the sermon sometimes, right? Because you slept two hours last night. Maybe you feel overwhelmed and discouraged as you deal with your teenagers. Maybe you feel frustrated and fearful when you consider your little toddler and you go, if nothing changes, this toddler is going to be a terrorist someday. How am I supposed to wrangle the heart of this little child and see them changed to love Jesus and submit to him? You're fearful, you're frustrated, and you know your own limits, and you know your own failings, and you know the insanity of the godless world out there, and you think, how can I get these kids ready to go out there into that world and follow Jesus? Lift your empty hands to Christ and allow him to fill you with all you need and more so that you can fulfill your ministry and your home to those kids. We could go on and on down the list of whatever kind of situation in life you might find yourself in, but no matter who you are, no matter what God is calling you to right now, I am encouraging you and calling you based on what we see here in this passage to rely on Jesus to supply your need as you seek to meet the needs of others. We have a lot in common with the 12. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson firsthand. He understood, as perhaps the apostle who had the most impactful ministry of them all, he knew where the power really came from. 2 Corinthians 4 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The surpassing power belongs to God. And not to us. Believe that. And as you believe that, cry out to God that He would provide for your need, that He would supply you with power, with wisdom, with courage, with humility, with love, with insight, so that you can do the things that He's calling you to do, the ministry that He has appointed for you. When we recognize with Paul that we're just jars of clay, we are fragile, we are common. There's nothing that special or impressive about us, but we have within us this treasure to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When you believe that, that means it's okay to be weak because we have a strong God. It's okay to not have all the answers because Jesus is the very wisdom of God. It's okay to be imperfect because we have a holy and a righteous Savior and King. You know, we started this message by looking back to the past, looking back to Elisha's ministry in the Old Testament, sort of a little like preview of this bigger and greater miracle. But I want to end our message today by actually looking forward, looking forward to the future in anticipation to a great banquet, a great feast that God is going to provide someday. I want to invite you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. I know we're going backwards into the Old Testament, but this is a future prophecy of something God promises to do one day, something that we are still looking forward to. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. Here's a promise a promise that will be fulfilled one day in the kingdom, the same kingdom that Jesus was preaching about to those people. I can't help but wonder if Jesus was offering this miracle in part as a little preview to point them ahead towards this kingdom future, this kingdom reality of what God is going to do one day. In Isaiah 25, 6, it says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, the one who fed the crowds, the one who would later offer himself on the cross, promises a future coming kingdom where he will one day provide for us an abundant feast. You see all the repetitions and the descriptions of this abundant, rich, satisfying feast that God himself is going to provide for his people. And we will say on that day, as we gather to the table, this is our God. We have waited for him. So as we go from here, let's go not only with gratitude for what Christ has provided in the past, as he broke his body for us on the cross and shed his blood. Let's also go from here with anticipation of what God will provide for us. When he swallows up death, when he wipes away every tear, when he restores his people and he dwells with us, and we say, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has provided himself to us to meet every need for all eternity. Lord Jesus, we praise you and give great thanks for your compassion and your hospitality, your grace as you, you welcome us to yourself and you provide for our needs. You provide what we cannot. You provide it abundantly. Lord, we thank you for how you, you care for us. You meet our physical needs. You make sure that we are fed and we are housed and we are clothed. And even when things are difficult, even when we feel the pressure, We know that you are with us and you are able and you have promised to take care of us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for how you've met our spiritual need in coming to this earth and living a perfect life, dying on the cross in our place to take our punishment, rising again to secure life and victory that you would then share with us. We thank you for how you have called us to yourself. You've opened our eyes to this good news and you've given us life. You've put your spirit in us. We thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we look forward in anticipation for that future day, when we will come to the table of that great feast, and we will fellowship with you, we will enjoy the richness and abundance of the inheritance that you have set aside for us. Lord, for some who may be in our midst today, and all of this sounds so foreign to them, they've not experienced your grace, they've never come to you in faith, I pray that they would recognize their only hope for real satisfaction, the kind that lasts, is that they come to you. The world has nothing to offer that can truly satisfy. There is no amount of money. There is no amount of pleasure. There is no human success or achievement. There is no earthly relationship that compares to the glory of knowing Christ, being known by him, being reconciled with God, and having this hope for the future. Lord, I pray that sinners would come to you today and receive your grace and salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.